Perspective Left by Mabel Watson Center, an independent feminist nonprofit comprehensive health care provider in Bangor, Maine. Join us as we explore topics that impact our sexual and reproductive health and lives. Here's your host, Aspen Rulin. Aspen uses they, them pronouns and is our client and community advocate. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Reproductive Left. I'm your host, Aspen. My pronouns are they, them. And today I'm chatting with Casey of Partners for Peace about the intersections of autonomy and domestic violence. Right at the top here, I'll give a content warning for discussions of intimate partner violence, abuse, sexual assault, stalking, and the like. None of this should be particularly specific and thus triggering, but I think it's important to give the heads up and please take care of yourself in the ways you need. Casey, Thank you so much for joining to me, or joining me today, I should say. Tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself and about Partners for Peace. Thank you, Aspen. I am Casey Falkenham. I'm the Director of Development and Engagement at Partners for Peace, and I use she, they pronouns. I am so happy to be here to talk more about domestic violence, um, as weird as that may sound, because I think it's so important to shed light on, uh, in particular, some tactics within relationships and families that uh, a lot of people are really afraid to talk about. At Partners for Peace, we have been providing services and support to people affected by domestic violence in Penobscot and Piscataquis counties for 50 years. And our community would know us by a few different names. You would know us in Penobscot County as Spruce Run. And in Piscataquis County, you might have known us as Woman Care. In 2013, we merged and we became Partners for Peace. And together we've been serving domestic violence survivors and anyone affected by intimate partner violence uh, for 50 years. Well, thank you again so much for joining me here. And um, I'm very glad you mentioned the name thing, because even though it's been like a whole decade now since merging and the name change, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if there are still some folks who get a little confused about it, especially because even though it's been a whole decade, they were still separate organizations under different names for the majority of the time they've been around. I know my introduction to what's now Partners for Peace was back when you guys were Spruce Run. And in fact, I had a Facebook memory pop up the other day of little baby Aspen tabling for Spruce Run at UMaine and you were there with me. So like whole decade of doing this work together in yeah. one way yeah. or another. I know. And honestly, even though it's been a decade, that feels like just yesterday to me. Actually, when you said mm -hmm. that it's been a decade since we merged, I don't know why that just kind of took me aback even. Um, mm -hmm. I started at Spruce Run in 2011 as an intern through the School of Social Work at the University of Maine. And that's how when we first got connected, that was right around that time. Mm -hmm. And I've been there and we did the the merge and the name change. Um, the big name change happened in 2017. And but still, some of these things do seem like just yesterday. But I, I agree. It is important for um, all of the listeners to know that we are um, all one organization and we're still here, still doing this great work to serve um, people affected by abuse and violence. 
Hell yeah. Uh, So first question that I have for you, how does autonomy or lack thereof show up when it comes to the topic of domestic violence? It shows up all over the place because at the heart of domestic violence or at the core of it, there is someone who is taking away um, power from one individual using power and control and coercion and really just taking away the basic human rights of the person that they are in this relationship with. Uh, And that is all about taking away someone's autonomy, really uh, taking over someone's life and their decision making power is what a lot of people who use abusive tactics do and have absolutely no right to do. Mm, Absolutely. And one thing I want to and I can link this in the caption of the show for our listeners. Yes. um, But you mentioned power and control. And I think a really important tool for people to know about that I know is, I mean, just widely available on Google, but also very much available on the Partners for Peace website is the power and control wheel. Um, I actually, so, I mean, there were other ways that I got involved with at the time Spruce Run, now Partners for Peace. Um, But with... um, you know, doing the hotline training and learning about the like power and control wheel in depth was something that put me on a path to healing from the abusive relationships that I had been in prior Mm -hmm. to that point. And I think that the, you know, everyone who I have talked to that has experienced some sort of intimate partner violence or relationship violence, who has viewed the power and control wheel has said that it in a lot of ways, one, like just shakes their world. Um, But two, ultimately, like does help lead them towards a life free of that treatment. Yes, thank you so much for saying that and and reminding us of that tool, the Power and Control Wheel, which was developed by a group of people who were experiencing domestic violence in their relationships in Duluth, Minnesota. And it's an incredibly important tool because it goes in depth with some examples of how coercion, in particular reproductive coercion, and we'll get to that next, uh, really how these things could look like in a relationship. And it is often one of the first things that a survivor of domestic violence or however someone's identifying can look at and can say, oh, that sounds familiar and that might be happening here. And having language to describe your experience can be incredibly powerful. It's one tool. And I will say that it does, um, there is some heteronormativity like sort of embedded within that tool. So there are also additional tools that we can link Aspen that might resonate more, especially with um, people across the gender spectrum, transgender and non-binary folks. Yeah, absolutely. It's, yeah, it's, it's such a good tool. And I know that like on the other side of it, there is also a like, I can't remember if this is the actual name, but there is a healthy relationship wheel. Because I think also something that happens for a lot of people who are 
obviously different people use different language for themselves, survivors of domestic violence, victims of domestic violence, that going forward, because they have experienced abuse, there is often the struggle of, you know, being able to identify the difference between like normal conflict and disagreement in a relationship and and abuse. And so having a tool like a like healthy relationship wheel is really helpful because I mean, like you mentioned, you know, people having the language to describe their experience is so helpful. And, uh, you know, that also applies to not just like, oh, I've been mistreated, to put it gently. It also applies to being able to parse out, am I in a healthy relationship? Mm, mm. And and what does that even look like is so challenging because every relationship is so different. Uh, and so it is a good tool. It's a good starting point. The the equality wheel is what it's called. Um, yes. That is a good relationship or a good example of what a healthy relationship could look like. I think it's such a good starting point as a tool. Mm-hmm. A uh, a point to then have more discussion about what does fairness look like when it comes to having a disagreement? What does it look like to disagree in a way that is fair and respectful to one another? That's where the discussions can start from, from a tool like that. Mm, absolutely. Well, let's take a quick pause here for a Mabel's Fast Fact. About 75% of people with vaginas don't orgasm from penetrative sex alone. Learn more in our show notes or at MabelWadsworth.org. And we're back. So we talked about autonomy more generally in regards to domestic violence and abuse, and you did hint at this a little. Uh, Can you delve more into the topic of reproductive coercion specifically? Reproductive coercion describes behavior uh, within a relationship when one person is using power and control and dominance over their partner's reproductive and sexual health uh, in order to control them. And so this can be this can include a wide variety of tactics and it doesn't always include all of these tactics for, for one person. So, but it could include sabotaging a partner's birth control. It could include starting sex with wearing a condom, but then removing the condom without letting the other partner know it could include forcing someone to become pregnant. It could also include forcing someone to terminate a pregnancy when that's not what they want. Um, So it can look a number of different ways, but at the core, it's controlling someone's reproductive choice. Mm. And um, one thing that I think is good for listeners to be aware of, and some of you may already know about this because, uh, you know, we have posted about this on the Mabel's blog. But so the tactic of either like stealthily removing a condom during, you know, sex that both people agreed a condom was going to happen. Obviously, this we're talking here um, about, you know, penetrative sex. Um, Either like stealthily removing a condom or tampering with it ahead of time, like poking pins through the wrapper or something um 
there is a new main law that actually gives victims and survivors of what is called stealthing a path to justice through the civil courts. Um, it recognizes that stealthing is sexual assault because it is, um, but it gives people a path forward that isn't necessarily through the criminal courts. And a lot of why this was brought forward in this specific way is because of people who have experienced stealthing, who have tried to go through criminal courts and were just significantly further re-traumatized, um, which is an issue not just in regards for folks who who have been victims or survivors of stealthing, but, you know, sexual assault generally, domestic violence. This is a, like, huge problem within that. It really is a huge problem. And and it is also true that so many survivors of domestic violence in their relationships experience reproductive coercion. It, about one in 10 women and about um, 8% of men and over half of transgender folks in relationships experience some form of sexual assault, rape, or reproductive coercion. So we're talking about a lot of people who are experiencing these tactics within their relationships, you know, with people who are supposed to love and, and care for them. And, uh, and so it's not as if uh, these these folks ever, you know, got in a relationship with someone and imagined that this would this would happen. Um, and mm. so, no no survivor of domestic violence or sexual assault, you know, pictures themselves in a courtroom or wants to be standing across from someone and go through a process like that. And that pro the process of any civil suit or any criminal justice um, action can be incredibly, incredibly um, re-traumatizing. And that's why organizations like ours exist to be able to support people through through those processes, if that's what someone um, is is wanting to engage in. Yeah. Absolutely. And two things that it just occurred to me that are important to point out here. Obviously, Casey, you know this, and I do think our listeners know this, but I just want to put it out there and name it. You know, a lot of people, upon hearing about different tactics of abuse, you know, maybe hearing about reproductive coercion specifically, would have the response of, oh my gosh, if that person's treating you like that, why not just leave them? Um, one, it is not that straightforward there are i mean like you mentioned you know no one goes into a relationship being like gee willikers i hope that i get abused and i end up in a courtroom someday like obviously no one's going yeah. into a relationship with yeah. that attitude and i was actually talking to a friend about this recently you know both of us being survivors of abusive relationships and how one of the things that's really hard that doesn't get talked about a lot is that obviously, you know, if you have been in an abusive relationship, that person has hurt you, but also there is a reason you loved them in the first place. Absolutely. And so when you are actively experiencing abuse, it is not 
you know, it's not like this is some stranger, though they might feel like a stranger in the moment. Um, This is someone who you care about and who you care for, and they are banking on that. They are banking on that and they are likely manipulating that care that someone has. Additionally, even when you have someone who does want to leave an abusive relationship, that is when things get the most dangerous. Um, Correct me if I'm wrong on this. I know it takes about usually like seven attempts for someone to leave an abusive relationship. Um, what by what percentage does the risk of like murder increase when someone tries to leave? Because I know it's a pretty significant percentage. It is a pretty significant percentage. I couldn't tell you the exact percentage, but what I can tell you that is, is that is that it's an increased risk that yes. um, there's an increased risk of domestic violence homicide when someone is in the process of leaving or when their abuser has perhaps even caught wind or caught on or noticed that there's been a change in behavior. That's that's definitely the most dangerous time for mm. um, for victims of domestic violence and it is true that that is when the majority of domestic violence homicides take place is during that really critical and dangerous time period and it is true that it takes um, survivors of domestic violence many um, attempts and tries and um, phone calls to friends and helplines and planning a lot of the time um, in order to leave someone who is abusing them for for hopefully the final time and mm. um, and with with safety and support it is a process and so we want our friends and family i too am a survivor of domestic violence we want our our friends and family to understand that uh we a lot of times that we appreciate the offers for help and support and that we also appreciate the non-judgment and um the patience and grace when it comes to us and um and we also appreciate if they refrain from from using victim blaming language mm-hmm. and just being mindful of um, autonomy to bring it back to autonomy and choice of the of the person who's experiencing domestic violence because it's already so much so been taken away from from sur- victims and survivors by their by the abusers. Yeah, absolutely, and. Um, That actually brings us into our next question I have. First, I'm going to backtrack a little. Just another thing on the reproductive coercion front. If you are someone who is experiencing that, who like you are worried that a partner is tampering with your birth control and you would like to have reliable contraception or contraceptives, rather, talking to your sexual health provider, whether that's at Mabel Lodger Center or not, um, can be really helpful because there are different, you know, birth control methods. One of the things that I always talk about when I, and I'm actually prepping to do a uh, like methods of contraception workshop with some healthcare providers soon. Um, 
And one of the things that I always bring up around some of the longer lasting methods and specifically the Depo Provera, which is the shot that's given every three months, is the story that I heard from, it might have been from when I was on the hot, uh, like in the hotline training at um, Partners for Peace. It might have just been through other trainings with my work at Mabel's, but talking about having like someone who had a patient who was experiencing reproductive coercion, who, you know, her partner had thrown out her pills before. He had threatened that if she had an IUD, he'd pull it out by the strings. And so she had a provider that she could get to every three months to get the Depo Provera shot because there was nothing. I mean, it was just a shot in the arm. There was nothing visible and it gave her that protection um so if you're someone experiencing that um there are like providers who can help and who will be non-judgmental um but back into what you were just talking about with yeah you know i think a lot of people do not think about when it comes to abuse and autonomy, the role that support people can play for people who are experiencing abuse. You know, when you love someone who is being abused, what are the ways that you can honor that person's autonomy? And what are some ways people inadvertently trample on that autonomy in trying to support their loved one? You already mentioned it a little, like victim blaming is a thing that comes up a lot. Yes, victim blaming is something that a lot of um, survivors hear along their journey and trying to find safety for themselves and for their children. They'll hear people say things like, why didn't you just leave? Or if you uh, if your kids were experiencing that or if you were being hurt that badly, why didn't you leave sooner? Why did you stay with this person? Why did you expose your children to this? You know, not not having seen that a lot of times survivors are doing so much to protect themselves and so much to protect their children and their pets mm-hmm. and their loved ones from getting harmed by, by this person. I know for me, when I was experiencing abuse, I went to great lengths to shelter my friends and family from that person's behavior, great lengths to do that. And it might not have seemed like that. And I think people probably thought, oh, Casey's self-isolating and she doesn't want to accept any help. And I, a lot of my friendships and, and my relationships with family were strained during that time, but I've been so fortunate to be able to heal those relationships and to the folks who, who I left behind in my past, there's probably good reason, right? And so we want to trust survivors to be able to make good choices for themselves. And even if it might look funny to people on the outside, just know that um, pe- that there's probably a lot more to that story. Absolutely. And one thing that immediately popped into my head when you were bringing up some of those victim victim blaming questions, like, well, if it was that bad, why did you stay why didn't you leave one that like those types Mm -hmm. of questions especially framing it as if it was that bad why didn't you leave and like these are not hypotheticals that casey and i are talking about these are real things that are said to and about victims and survivors every single day first off that saying something like if it was that bad why didn't you leave is saying 
I don't believe you. That Mm -hmm. is saying that you think that that person is lying about what their experience is. The other thing, something very important that I learned doing the hotline training that has still stuck with me over the years and has greatly impacted how I communicate with people is that any why question is an accusation. And it might be an accusation against the like person that you're talking to, in this case, a survivor. It might be an accusation against the person who has harmed them, which, again, most like victims and survivors are still going to, even if like they recognize that how they are being treated is not okay, they are still going to hold some level of love and care for the person who has harmed them. So like that is a thing that might make them shut down. Um, So you may notice, like, if you are someone who knows me in real life, you might suddenly be reflecting and being like, huh, I really don't hear Aspen frame questions in the context of why. They will turn them into what questions instead. And yes, that is very intentional. One of the other things that, like, I have noticed comes up around autonomy and survivors or victims of abusive relationships and, like, the people who are who care about someone who's experiencing this is there's not just like you mentioned the like, why didn't you leave sooner? Like a lot of the kind of like after the fact things, there is often like people who love someone who's in an abusive relationship. Obviously they are scared for the person they care about and they want them to be safe. And sometimes They're like, gosh, this person that I care about, they are just not prioritizing their own safety. I'm going to give them an ultimatum. I'm going to force this. I'm going to force them to be safe. And that one, it doesn't work. Like it simply does not work like that. And when you do that, when you try to tell a person who is experiencing abuse that you like know better than them and that you have the right to force them to do something you have shown you are not a safe person for them you have shown that you are willing to try to manipulate power like the person who is abusing them and i do not say this to like make anyone feel bad if you are like feeling a little something right now know that i love you and that i am someone who having supported a like I have supported other friends I have supported far too many friends frankly through leaving abusive relationships like I've also had that thought I've had that thought that like I just want to drive Mm -hmm. to this person's house and make them get in my car and I'm going to make them live at my house where so-and-so can't get them and then they're going to be safe like I have wanted to do that but I also know that that doesn't work One, it just doesn't work. Like, that is kidnapping. Uh, Don't kidnap people. Like, even if it's for a supposed good cause, let's not break the law there. Um, But also, like, you need to be a safe person who demonstrates that their autonomy matters. That is the only way for them to get both through this and out of this, to affirm to them that their autonomy matters. And one of the friends who I supported, who I supported through several years of being in a, like, unfortunately long-term abusive relationship, 
this friend's mom actually reached out to me at one point, probably about a year before this friend did was finally able to safely leave that relationship. Um, they are doing super well now, by the way, just BT dubs, because this is what happens when you support people's autonomy. But this friend's mom reached out to me about basically trying to, she wanted to stage a like pretty forceful intervention that was essentially like, if you don't leave him, you will be cut off from everyone. And I had to like have, it feels a little silly for me of all people to be saying this, but I had to have a little bit of a come to Jesus talk with her about how like that would not work. It would only reinforce the behaviors that this man had engaged in against my friend. And like, so it wouldn't work. So she wouldn't leave him. And then let's say now now she has no support network. How soon is she going to leave that relationship now? Um, and so it's one of those things where, again, like if you have had those thoughts, if you have like had the instinct to lean that way, I don't blame you. Again, every single like all friends of mine who like I have supported through leaving abusive relationships, I have had that moment where I'm like, let me just come take you and you can live at my house and we can get through this. <laughs> but like, I also know logically it does not work. And and it only like reaffirms what the abuser is telling that person that they they can't make their own decisions. And we don't want to reinforce the what the abuser is saying. Yeah, it's almost like taking the side of the abuser and it almost mm. it, it when it happens to you and I can speak from my own experience and certainly the many, many people I've worked with um, throughout the the past 12 years uh, who have experienced domestic violence, it, it almost feels like when someone gives you an ultimatum or treats you as if you don't have the ability to make choices for yourself if someone mm-hmm. make one for you, it almost feels like you're siding with that abuser and like, well, I guess my abuser's right. I can't make any decisions for myself. You're like, I'm Mm -hmm. not good enough. I can't think clearly. And of course, that's not going to feel good. And I think the other reality is that we're asking the wrong why questions. Mm. We're asking the wrong people the why the why question, as you were talking about earlier, you know, when we're asking people who are survivors of domestic violence, you know, why did you stay? Why did you do this? Why did you do that? We're almost making it seem like um, they were complicit in the abuse or that the abuse was somehow their fault, which is also just abusive and problematic. And why are we putting the onus on the the victim or the survivor to leave the abuse instead of putting the onus on the person who's perpetuating the harm doer, the abuser in this situation? We need to be asking that person, why did you feel like you had the right to do those things in the first place? Why do you feel Mm -hmm. like you have the right to take away someone's basic human rights? Mm -hmm. So, So to... To circle back to the fact that a lot of times reproductive coercion can lead to unwanted or unplanned pregnancy for people um, who are continuing to experience abuse throughout their pregnancy, whether or not they want to continue it or not. And maybe they do want to continue it, um, but it's 
it's also true that the number one killer of people who are pregnant is domestic violence, is intimate partner. And so we have to be asking ourselves, why do people, and in particular, the percentages will tell you it's often male-identified cisgender men who commit these um, murders. In this case, we're talking about murders, Mm -hmm. domestic violence, homicide. Why do they feel like they have the right to take away the life of of a person and and in fact maybe even a child depending on how how long the pregnancy is carried to term is it carried to term is it not anyway domestic violence homicide is um something that occurs in the state of Maine at the rate of uh, 50% of homicides in the state of Maine are domestic violence related. And in the past year, we had 15 individuals who were killed as a result of domestic violence. Why do people think that they, why do people believe that they have the right to take away life and to take away human rights of other people? We have to look at our culture and the ways in which our society is shaped to give some people higher value and higher power and how that power is perverted and used in a way to control other human beings. Absolutely. And I think, I mean, as you're saying, you know, this is not just an issue of like, oh, this happens in a bunch of individual cases and they're totally unrelated by social norms. Like, no, obviously these are connected by like social values that we have around like gendered violence. And well, again, obviously, you know, anyone can be a perpetrator of domestic violence. Anyone can be a victim of domestic violence. We have numbers on who is the majority of perpetrators and who is the majority of victims and survivors. Um, and, and it very much reflects our cultural values around stuff with gender. I think something else with that that's really important to make note of, which I will plan to put a link to the specific data on this, is the difference in sentencing When you have like if and this is specifically looking at cisgender heterosexual couples, when you have a cisgender straight man who has a history of perpetrating domestic violence against his girlfriend or wife. And when I say history, I mean, like we have documented, you know, documented like police were called, you know, whether or not he was charged with anything varies. But like it is a like known thing. And then he commits domestic violence homicide. On average, men who are abusers who murder their female partners will receive shorter sentences than, and again, we're still talking like cis straight couples, than women who there is a history that their male partner has been abusing them. Again, police called, maybe he was arrested and charged, maybe not. Um, If she kills him in self-defense, she will serve a longer prison sentence than a man who has a history of abusing his partner for committing domestic violence homicide. Um, And I think that is something that very much reflects our cultural values around around just abuse. Mm, mm. Yeah. 
And I think it's just incredibly important for us to take note of the high risks associated and the vulnerabilities in people and the, I hate to say warning signs because it, it does make it almost seem like we're putting it on, uh, victims and survivors of domestic violence to be able to look out for for their own risks. Uh, but I would say the people that really need to be looking out for risks and need to be uh, helping to spread the word about domestic violence resource centers are healthcare providers who mm-hmm. are out there and and um, providing care to pregnant people, providing um, care to people who are seeking birth control. uh, Because if someone is, if a provider is noticing that it seems like they're coming in really frequently or um, there seems to be risks to the pregnancy, um, a lot of times, people, especially women who are experiencing abuse in the year prior to um, or during a recent pregnancy are 40 to 60 percent more likely than people who are not being abused to report things like high blood pressure, uh, vaginal bleeding, severe nausea, kidney or urinary tract infections and hospitalizations during pregnancy and are more likely to deliver preterm. So if you're seeing a lot of these things as a provider, it, it may indicate that there is, um, that there is abuse going on, that this, this pregnant Mm -hmm. person has been experiencing abuse and trauma. And, um, and so not just to be caring for the physical health of the, um, individual and, uh, what's right in front of you, but also giving people resources to be able to think about safely, um, safe, finding safety away from the abusive partner could be life-saving. Absolutely. Let's take our final Mabel's Fast Fact break. It's important to remember that while one in five people will experience a mental illness during their lifetime, Everyone faces challenges in life that can impact their mental health. There are many tools you can use to improve your mental health and increase resiliency. Learn more at MabelWadsworth.org. Obviously, supporting people who are or have been victims and survivors of abuse and assault is deeply important. You've already hinted at this a little, but within the support, I've seen a lot of people talk about what women in particular can supposedly do to protect themselves, which sends the message that people who do experience violence simply didn't try hard enough to not get assaulted and really takes responsibility off of perpetrators of violence. Again, you've obviously touched on this a little bit, but how can we shift so that we are putting the burden of change on abusers rather than victims and survivors? And I want to say like what you mentioned about healthcare providers and warning signs is honestly a really good example because that is one where like 
you know, having providers who are aware of warning signs and teaching providers to look for warning signs and how to support their patients and not just their patient safety, but their patient's autonomy is a really good example of how people can meet a like survivor or victim's need without putting a burden on the like person experiencing the abuse that it's like it is within a professional's purview to offer support. I think it all starts really early on in how mm-hmm. we are educating and talking to our children. Um, and this is just one example. Can we talk to boys and young men about birth control? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Please mm-hmm. not, not just, you know, young female identified, uh, but young, young men as well and queer folks, of course, too. And, Y'all are doing that hard work at Mabel's. I'm very, you know, very aware of that. But can we can we talk to young boys and men about getting screened for STIs? It's incredible mm-hmm. out here with um, in my social life asking people my age, men my age, like when's the last time you were you had STD testing? And they're like, oh, how do I do that? what are we doing mm-hmm. with people? Like we, mm-hmm. we need to not just put the onus on people who have a uterus to do all of the, all of the work. And I think it does, it, it connects to a society that gives men uh, and in particular cisgender heterosexual men and especially white men such entitlement and power and mm. access to power where they don't even have to think about these things in our society unless it's for the purpose of control and mm-hmm. we just need to be doing better at uh, creating a, a culture in which we are supporting people in making healthy fair choices for for each other and good choices and taking care of people. And that includes yourself and not just always putting all of the work, all of the care work, all of the sexual health and reproductive health work on people, um, on people who have a uterus. Yeah. And, um, two thoughts I have on that one, you know, in where you specifically were talking about education around STIs and like who typically gets tested. And that is like, you know, the way that, you know, like young cis men or I mean, cis men of all ages, you know, often don't know whether or not they should be getting tested or even how to get tested. That is a like, that's not an individual failing on their part. That is a like, you know, issue within our culture. And it makes me think how um, not too long ago, I did a consent 101 workshop at a local university for a like, not that topic related class. Um, But I, in that, you know, mentioned that like, yeah, like STIs, uh, like you should get tested frequently because STIs can be asymptomatic, particularly for people with penises, but you can still like pass it on to other people. And there was a person in the audience. Now, granted, I don't know this individual, but like based on how they talked about this, I would like hazard a guess this was a cis man who asked the question of, well, if it's asymptomatic, then why does it matter? And it's like, bestie, I literally just said you can still 
give it to other people. Um, and then I did also talk about like things can be asymptomatic and still have other health issues. And that doesn't mean we need to have shame or stigma, but blah, blah, blah. And yeah, like that is that is a huge issue in the culture of how we educate cis men about these things. And I've noticed in particular, because you might be thinking to yourself, well, Aspen, you're talking about asymptomaticness for people with penises, but you're talking about the culture with cis men. Um, I've also found that trans women, even those who like don't haven't necessarily gotten great sex ed, are still like pretty much always better about this um, because they still didn't get the weird like male entitlement gender socialization um the other thought that came up to me around you know how like we shift this so we're not putting the burden of change on victims and survivors and we're putting it on you know people who are causing harm i think one thing in particular i mean we've talked a lot about how men are socialized but also how women are socialized mm-hmm. because women are socialized to tolerate abuse and then they are shamed for tolerating abuse. And an example yes. I can give of that within my own life. So obviously I am not a woman, but like, you know, I was raised and treated as one. And like, I am someone who like experiences a lot of misdirected misogyny and I'm like, you know, viewed as a woman by most like just strangers and whatnot. Um, and, you know, I remember as a really young child when I was seven there was this boy a year younger than me who had a crush on me and on the playground he would always chase me around trying to kiss me and I hated it and I didn't like it and it was like the last day of school we were there late for like a little like family picnic thing um and he like finally caught me and he like kissed me on the cheek and I ran up to my dad who was chatting with my teacher like in tears and their response was like oh that's so cute he likes you and then oh if my math is right um so let's see if I was 13 so seven years later that same boy threatened to rape me while we were on the school bus And I remember, you know, like there were people who said that I shouldn't have reported it because, well, his parents, like, you know, they're probably going to like beat him. You know, that's why he's like that. That's probably why. And this was said by people who like did not know his parents. Um, Well, obviously he's like that because he must have have parents who are like that and blamed me for reporting it that like he might face his own harm at home and there was no self-reflection from anyone that i had essentially already been assaulted by this child and there was like no one made that connection of like yeah he was taught that he is allowed to sexually assault people and that that's okay um and you know i think about how many little girls get pushed at the playground by little boys and told that means he likes you and you get told that at six years old and you get told that at 10 years old and then at 16 you're supposed to know that a that a boy who cares about you doesn't hurt you but you've been told your whole life that that's what love looks like um so i think uh you know stopping socializing people into tolerating abuse and then shaming them for tolerating abuses um probably an important tactic for us to take yes and don't and don't force children to give hugs or kisses like i was growing up i was always um like forced to hug 
everyone or it'd be like, oh, give so-and-so a hug, give this person a hug. And if I ever didn't want to, it was like, I was shamed for that. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. I gave a lot of hugs that I didn't actually want to give. And that's affected me. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I think it affects a lot of um, people who grow up as, as female or, um, yeah, I think it does. I think it, it affects a lot of people. So let's let's learn from that and let's make some changes. And I think the other thing that we need to really look at is uh, is more on on power and control and how mm. we how those things are at the fingertips for um, using in an abusive way for some people, um, particularly if people are male identified, then or they grow up male identified, they those tools are are a little bit more at their fingertips. But that doesn't mean that's always the case. Like I know Mm. for me, um, the person who was abusive to me was a woman. And um, but she also really um, subscribed to, or wanted to be more masculine. And Mm. I will tell you that for me, um, when I think about the impacts of toxic masculinity in our culture, I know that that was present in the relationship in which I was experiencing abuse, even with a woman. And so Mm. we can't take a culture of hetero, sexism and this in a culture of uh, our patriarchal culture out of the equation even in queer Mm. relationships where we experience abuse it's all connected and we we have to be talking about it absolutely and I think I know one thing that you and I have talked about before like prior to this podcast is how you know at the root that like you know our culture and weird gender shit is a lot of the driving force but like the real like deeper root than that is entitlement and you know I think about the fact that like I know like personally know like cis men who have been abused by cisgender women who there was no like they they had no desire to be masculine they had no but what they had was a feeling of entitlement yes and um you know, like I, like I've also, like I have friends who have experienced abuse from trans men and how, you know, there's often this like leaning on, it's very interesting because actually when I uh, was getting my undergrad degree, I like did a course on men and masculinity and I actually wrote my final paper on are trans men socialized as men? And the answer is yes. And Mm. like, that is a good example of it. You know, I've known people who have like tried to argue that trans men can't be perpetrators of patriarchal violence because they weren't like socialized as men. And it's like, well, first off, yes, they were. They just had a like different experience than like, you know, in early childhood than like cis men do, but also white men have a different experience of gender socialization than black men do. Absolutely. And and so like, I think, yeah, I think that, you know, factoring in how our society structures, you know, does stuff around gender is so important to, to consider when we are talking about domestic violence, both when it comes to the topic of like, how are people, like playing into patriarchal violence and how are people also like essentially like acting like that's not a factor here or they are like you're kind of going against like what we would expect as a norm 
Absolutely. I will never forget doing the gender stereotypes lesson that we had had always done. Um, Mm. But I did in a room in which there were a couple of men of color who were advocates at um, at a different organization. It was like a statewide thing. And Mm. I did this presentation and I asked the question of. Um, and I was thinking, I was thinking in within the context of white people and I totally was, and it was white, um, men and white women. And, and the question really was, what is it that, um, men are the most fearful of women doing? And Mm -hmm. for white men, that's often being humiliated. They don't want to be humiliated. They don't want to be embarrassed. Mm -hmm. Um, and for women, they are most afraid of being killed by men. Mm. And the black men in the room, their response to what are you most afraid of women doing was we're afraid of someone calling the cops on us Mm. unjustly. And which is being murdered with extra steps. Right. And this was several years ago, but it's totally changed my perspective of I was doing that activity within the framework of sexism, but Mm. I was completely leaving out our white supremacist culture. Yeah. And I think it's important for us to acknowledge that, like, I think it's really good that you're acknowledging that, like, you made that oopsie. Yeah. You know, like when we live in a culture of white supremacy, like it is the air we breathe. And even when like we know white supremacy is like not chill, like there are going to be times that we like (laughs) we make an oopsie. And like, you know, the question is, like, are we going to like double down and like really lean into white supremacy? So many people do. (laughs) So many people do. Or are we going to like take a step back from our ego, recognize that perfectionism, including moral perfectionism, is also a product of white supremacy. And, you know, step back from that and recognize that, like, I messed up. Let's move forward. Like, let's, let's, you know, let's do better. And I think, like you mentioned, and, but that's also that exercise that you did, even though you were approaching it from, like, that white supremacist lens that we are socialized into, that still also is a really important like subject lesson in the Mm -hmm. fact that like, yes, like this is a thing that like black men have to be concerned about. And then of course, like, you know, black women and other women of color, it's that, you know, compounding that uh, intersection, intersectionality, um, you know, being at those intersections of marginalization. Uh, Casey, do you have any final parting thoughts for our listeners? You know, I was just thinking about how shame is the enemy of accountability and that Mm. we are to hold ourselves accountable and our communities accountable and people who are doing harm, people who have done harm. We've all done harm to some degree or another. And so we have to hold ourselves accountable and others accountable when there is wrongdoing and Mm. do our best to change and 
I also want to invite people to be a part of these discussions long term. Come be a part of Partners for Peace. We have another 50 years ahead of us. We will be here as long as we are needed. We don't wish to exist. We didn't Mm. wish to exist 50 years ago, certainly, but we were born out of necessity and we will continue to be here for as long as we are needed. Um, And we certainly need support uh, from people who are willing to volunteer, people who are willing to donate, people who are willing to partner with us like Mabel Wadsworth, uh, so that we can be as supportive to people who experience domestic violence as possible and also just continue the conversations. And thank you for being a part of it, Aspen, the conversations of what kind of culture and what kind of community do we want to do we want to be building? That's that's just as important. Absolutely. Well, Thank you so much for joining me on Reproductive Left today. We will see you next month for our final episode of the fall autonomy season.